I had a real problem with getting up in front of the company and saying, here's what the problem is. And the reason is that I felt like the problems were mine to solve, which is, I think, kind of a bad outcome of the straight A student mentality, which is like, I'm good at solving problems. I should solve the problem. It's the biggest problem for the company. That's just wrong. It's wrong for a CEO founder, especially at that scale. We were like 50 people, I think. At that scale, like the CEO should be solving the problems. I mean, you can help, but like really your job is to provide clarity as to what the problems are and when they need to be solved by. That is the role. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show, so if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. I actually think the first time we met was in this room. I don't know if you remember this. And I had the CIO of Coca-Cola here. Ah, uh, yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. 2016 or 17. It was a while ago. We had your email, obviously. Yeah. And I shot you an email because he was like bringing in the CEO and the executive team. Yep. It was you, right? It was definitely mm-hmm. you. We were sitting right here. Yeah, it was me and Jenya. Yes. There was a reason it didn't work. He wanted more than what Segment at the time was willing to do. Do you remember? I don't remember. I think Coca-Cola has a reseller model, like a distributor model, where you know they don't do direct sales. They don't have direct relationships with their customers. They sell through bodegas and yes. whatever else. And so they wanted a partner who I think could somehow magically extract yes. end customer data. And like, well, it's not... It's not just segment doesn't do it. That's just black magic that doesn't exist. So <laughs> after that, you left, and then he and I did a tour of like ten to fifteen different locations for us to host them. And the level of detail that we were going through in order to figure out if this was the right venue was I was like, this is not real. They would ask questions like, "What type of water do you serve here?" Like the water bottles, because if it was not that brand, we wouldn't be hosting it. Like we wouldn't. Man, that's so messed up. Then they're not learning about the competition. That's just, that's just backwards. Oh man. Well, anyway, I'm really excited to be doing this. One of my challenges with preparing for this episode, I have a rule of thumb where no prep docs that I have are allowed to be more than two pages. And usually at least a half a page is the person's background and resume because it takes away from me being present with the conversation and like digging into any second plus order questions and just doing mostly Q&A, which I think is stupid. With you, I started at seven pages of things that I wanted to talk to you about. And I've spent the last day and a half like paring it down to two. So anyway, we'll see if I can do this in an hour and a half. I'm pumped to do it. All right, man. Well, welcome to the show. I get all these things started the same way. I read your background back to you. You got your BS in aerospace engineering from MIT. And before that, I guess you were an intern at Blue Origin, or is that like going into MIT? Uh, I was a high school intern at Blue Origin. High school intern at Blue Origin. Yeah, and I did not get my BS. You didn't? No, I dropped out. Oh, because you dropped out, right. Yeah, that's right. You only went for three years, right? Yep. Good. And Blue Origin is Bezos' space company. Yes. I didn't even know it existed in 2007. Yeah, it's been around for a long time. Okay. It it was small when I first got there. 
high school Peter walking into Blue Origin. That's a funny, that's a funny image. You were also a lab assistant at University of Washington. Again, this is before MIT. Yeah, it's high school. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Then during MIT, you were an intern at somewhere called Bruxton. Then you were a lab assistant at MIT working on visualizations of gravitational waves. Then you were a co-founder of something called Iomi Labs. Iomis. Iomis. Okay. And uh, it was a system for harvesting hydrogen gas for ambient water vapor. From ambient water vapor to keep balloons aloft indefinitely. <laughs> and then uh, you were a research assistant somewhere else. And then you started Segment in 2011, dropped out of school with a couple of your buddies. Ultimately, and we're going to talk a lot about this, in 2020, it was acquired by Twilio for $3.2 billion, raised $280 million. Previous to that, you're an angel investor now. You've recently been appointed to the board of directors of Arcadia. And most recently, you are the CEO and co-founder of, is it Charm or Charm Industrial? Charm Industrial. Okay. As of 2018, you are the CEO and co-founder of Charm, which does carbon removals. Okay. Can I start picking apart some questions that I have in the background here? Yeah, totally. I asked some of your old colleagues and friends who were with you at MIT, let me get this straight. So Peter didn't actually study CS in school. And the answer that I got back was no. And in fact, there was generally a hierarchy of majors at MIT. And MIT is like, whatever. I mean, this is a pretty damn good school. And in MIT, aerospace engineering was at the pinnacle of majors. And apparently, again, you could tell me if this is wrong, but over two thirds of the class in one specific semester, whatever, dropped out. Generally, it's at least 50% are dropping out of this major because it's so hard. And you figured out at some point that you don't actually have to go to class to do pretty good on the test. You can just read the textbook a little bit before and be fine. Is that true? And you're gonna have a hard time with me telling you your background because you're very humble, but is that true? Can you just tell me? Well, so the the Core 16 is very hard and there is a weeder class called Unified Engineering, which is sophomore year. And yeah, the goal of the class is to weed out half of the students. There's a couple famous classes at MIT for how hard they are. It is one of them. The other is junior lab in the physics department in course eight. But my favorite part of MIT is that they've got like 23 departments by number, of course. And you only refer to them ever by the numbers. And they are all engineering, sciences, etc. Except for all of the humanities are clustered into like course 21. My absolute favorite reason to go to MIT was like they just took all the stuff that I didn't really care that much about and put it in one course. And they're like, yeah, you got to take a couple of those. But let's talk about the real departments, one through whatever. Anyways. But yeah, yeah. There's a few of these courses that are famously hard and unified engineering and course 16 is one of them. And in those famously hard courses, like just indulge me a little bit here. You realize it's like it's not it wasn't that hard. No, no, that one was hard. Maybe later. I I forget. Maybe later at MIT, I started caring more about building companies and things like that and figured out that I could eventually not not go to classes. But yeah, no, Unified, I definitely went to class. That was hard. I heard you actually met one of your co-founders in middle school. And the way that you met was through the math competition circuit, where you guys were like seventh and eighth grade doing like pre-calc math competitions. Is that also true? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Calvin, I, yeah, Calvin, I met a... Yeah, on the math competition circuit. And then it gets nerdier than that, though. We actually, we really got to know each other at summer math camp, Um, (laughs) not just math team. Yeah, we we took a math class with Gary Pounder, who's famous actually because he pounds the table 
and throws chairs. But he inspires a lot of students that do really well in math. So we took his summer math class. I'm almost a wannabe nerd. I've never viewed nerd as something negative or like having any negative stigma. Do you like or do you view that as a compliment? Like, was there ever a time where nerd has, is negative to you? I'd say there was a huge transformation for me around the end of high school. You know, that moment where prior to college admissions, being a nerd is like a horrible sin. Right. And post-college admissions, you see all the nerds got into all the great schools. And there's like this thing that happens in the last three months of senior year where suddenly all the nerds are cool. <laughs> that's, the, that's the dividing moment. <laughs> what was conversation like for you growing up at the dinner table with your folks? My dad in particular and I would have very long conversations, often an hour or two after eating dinner. We'd talk about what, whatever was on my mind. It could be something that we learned in history or something in math. or, uh, But yeah, we have actually pretty fond memories of that, like very, very long conversations after, after dinner. Is it true? There's a list of these that I just can't wait to go through with you for you to tell me <laughs> true or false. I started asking people in your life, like, what's Peter doing on a Friday night? And <laughs> said, not what you and I are doing. <laughs> generally, the theme was his enjoyment comes out of problem solving. And it generally doesn't have much to do with like, how can I get to the bottom of this case of beer or fifth? Are you part of an open source group of folks that are building telescopes? Uh, yes. Is it true that on a business trip to Australia once... <laughs> to keep a straight face. You're flying to Australia, long flight. This was during segment. And you were frustrated because you were in the negotiation of something legal with some contract that you were doing. You didn't understand it as well as you thought you should have. And you brought this like insanely dense book on contract law that you later used to help structure deals. True or false? Uh, false. It was an accounting book. <laughs> Okay, follow-up question to that. Did you also bring a book by Nate Silver, which is also not easy read, for pleasure on that same flight? <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> I think it's true. Okay, true or false? When you first moved into one of your offices at Segment, you were frustrated by the noise levels that were happening in the office. You did not think they were appropriately optimized. So you installed decibel meters around the office and ingested all the data from the sound spatially that was happening and you adjusted roles and functions of the company to best calibrate to that sound. Yeah, we moved people around <laughs> to the quiet parts of the office. Like engineers go to the quiet part of the office, sales goes to the loud yeah, part Yeah, exactly. Of the and it was actually backwards from what we expected. So the data helped. What do you mean? We built this decibel meter app. We installed it on all the iPads that are on all the conference rooms which were like littered around this big open warehouse office in the design district in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And the data showed actually that the front part of the office was the noisiest and the back part was the quietest, which wasn't actually obvious. People thought it was the reverse. And so we moved all the engineers to the back part and moved all the salespeople to the front part and everyone was happier. But yeah, we had a real-time map of noise around the office. True or false? The next office that you went to, you did the same thing, but for carbon dioxide, where... The windows, I don't think the windows opened in this office or something. There was a problem with airflow. And you had built a similar system to ingest the data this time around CO2 so that you could make updates to the HVAC system. True. It turns out that above a thousand parts per million CO2 
you start losing cognitive function measurably. And so we're like, this is a business problem if people are losing cognitive function. And so we started measuring the CO2 in conference rooms and in the open space. And we started to see concentrations that were over a thousand parts per over million. Over a thousand. Yeah, which means we're just like medically making bad decisions. So yeah, we had the building crank up the AC or the HVAC to get more fresh air in. And we could see that we fixed the CO2 concentrations. I also heard as a part of that, you installed plants. Indeed. Everywhere to balance that equilibrium. Indeed, it helps visually too, because people get less stressed when they have the sort of natural noise of plants that's been shown. But it's actually a little unexpected. If you go into that, if you went into that office at night, plants actually respirate at night. They do the reverse. Mm -hmm. During the day, they do photosynthesis and they capture CO2, which Mm -hmm. was great, brought down CO2 levels during the day. But if you come in at night, the plants are burning their sugar and they're outputting CO2 and CO2 actually spiked. At night? At night, yeah. So no no decision-making at night. Get out of there. Get out of there. <laughs> the telescope thing. Tell me about the telescope thing. Yes, yeah, so I have a good friend, actually, we were just hanging out last night. This guy, Mike Rubel. He's one of the very early engineers at Planet Labs. And they built a fleet of small satellites that take a picture of the Earth every day. My wife, I was an early, early teammate there as well, which is how I met all these folks. But what Mike has figured out is potentially, maybe, a way to do optical telescopes at arbitrarily low resolution. So basically, rather than building one super giant mirror on one super giant optical telescope to get finer and finer grained pictures of the cosmos, he's maybe figured out a way to do it as an array to take, basically build a ton of small optical telescopes that can take very, very high resolution pictures. And so I'd say it's in the very early research stages, but he's made a lot of good progress and uh, excited to support him in that. And Certainly, if it works, it's a big deal. You could potentially get like a thousand X finer resolution for a fraction of the cost of current telescopes. Having seen videos of you, read about you, one thing that feels like while Peter has definitely changed and evolved, your emotional band seems to have always stayed very similarly even keel. Number one, is that a fair assumption? Number two, what like fires you up? Like it takes very little, like a good meal for me. And I'm like, you know, you can hear me in the conference room <laughs> next door. What just gets you pumped? I think actually my emotional bandwidth or emotion bandwidth has narrowed mm-hmm. o- over time. And I think being in a startup is a big part of that. Leading a startup is a big part of that. You ride this crazy emotional roller coaster. You hit new extremes that you like didn't know before, but the continued execution of the company expects that you be grounded and thoughtful and somewhat emotionless in your decision-making, at least, in how you handle those ups and downs, whether it's a reduction in force, a huge new round of financing, firing someone, and then immediately going into a press interview. All of those things are extreme emotional experiences that kind of force you to suppress or handle those in a very even-keeled way. Being a startup founder generally reduces that emotional width over time. I guess my question is, does it reduce it more internally or externally? Do you feel it differently or do you externalize it differently? Yeah, both. You definitely externalize it differently because you have to, you have to, but the extremity of the experiences of extreme pressure or whatever, like also you've just, I think just experience a broader range of emotions. And so things that previously would have felt like a big deal are, are not a big deal anymore. So I think it's both. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay, the quote. 
For me, there is an important learning. Breakthroughs in product market fit don't come from driving 110 miles per hour down a straight line. They come from meandering the countryside. It's just excruciating to keep that freewheeling curiosity when you're battling for existence. I want to repeat that last sentence. It's just excruciating to keep that freewheeling curiosity when you're battling for existence. I thought that was very insightful. Both companies that I've helped start, both Segment and Charm, the actual idea for what the company became, in the case of Segment, it was realizing that Analytics JS was a great piece of software that people could get a lot of value from. And at Charm, it was this breakthrough that we could inject bio oil underground. Neither of those breakthroughs came from me. Both of them came from my co-founders. In the first case at Segment, Ian Storm Taylor, and in the case of Charm from Sean Meehan. And it came from this fact that I tend to be a very linear thinker of like, I've seen the goal and I will now smash my head against the wall <laughs> until that goal like pops out of the wall or I break through the wall to that goal. And uh, I have a, sort of a quiet persistence, I guess, in, in trying to push for that. But both of these key breakthroughs in the founding stories of each company didn't come actually from that. They didn't come from smashing our head against the wall. They came actually from, in each case, taking a step back and exploring things in a more kind of artistic way, in a more nonlinear way, this sort of freewheeling curiosity that I mentioned in that quote, and looking a bit more broadly, like maybe Charm is, you know, is the recent example where Sean was trying to figure out how to dispose of bio oil. And I was like, dude, this is just not relevant. This is not on the direct path to us finding product market fit. We need to be searching for markets or whatever. And instead, he was trying to figure out how to dispose of like a few gallons of bio oil that we'd made. And in doing that, he came across two different ways. We could incinerate it or we could inject it down a disposal well, like big whoop. Okay, great. Just do it and let's move on. And then he's like, wait a second. If we put the bio oil down a well, isn't that a permanent carbon removal method? That was the key insight. And it came from like exploring this random, seemingly unrelated detail of how we dispose of some bio oil that we'd made. That freewheeling curiosity that Sean had to like go and look at this other area that was just at the time, like practically just a curiosity, didn't seem related to going after the mm -hmm. goal, I think was actually critical to us having the breakthrough of what the company could become. And, and AnalyxJS was something similar. Why did you describe it as excruciating? When you've raised money for a company and you are on a timeline, basically, with the runway that you have, the question is, are you going to find product market fit? in that time frame. And so if you're spending time doing things that don't seem to be on the path to doing that thing, that's excruciating. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that that's pretty much the only way it happens in my experience. Mm -hmm. Being like you raise a seed, then in order to get the A, you need to flip over a few cards, show some repeatability, i.e. product market fit. There's only a certain amount of runway that you have to spend that seed money. Generally, Peter's thought process, path of least resistance to get there, Path of least resistance then excludes the serendipity that comes with usually what product market fit actually ends up being. Can we talk about that first at Segment? Segment did not start out as Segment. What did it start as? started out as a classroom lecture tool. Mm -hmm. Got to remember, we were all students in college at MIT in Rhode Island School of Design in Ian's case. And yeah, the idea was to give students this button to push to say, I'm confused. The professor would see this graph over time of how confused their students were. We thought it was kind of cute and useful for professors. And it was inspired by one of the YC partners. He was a professor at MIT. And then we went to our YC interview and Paul Graham was excited about it. In that interview, the professor said that he wouldn't use it, which was, which was a little ridiculous. 
But anyways, we built this classroom lecture tool. We raised money at Demo Day. And then we took it back to the classroom in Boston at MIT, at Boston University, Harvard, et cetera. And it was just an unmitigated disaster. All the students opened their laptops. You're standing in the back of the class watching them get onto this thing. Yeah, exactly. And they all opened their laptops. And at the beginning of class, we counted screens and we could see that 60% were not using the tool. They were doing other things, Flickr, Gmail, Twitter, whatever. And by the end of class, it was 80% were doing something else. And you had already raised money from Y Combinator. We'd raised 600K, both from Y Combinator and a handful of angel investors coming, uh-huh. out, coming out of Demo Day. And it was just obvious that it was not going to work. There's just no way. The professors didn't care enough and the students, it was horribly distracting to have laptops open in class. At the time, it was all the rage to have computers in the classroom. Mm-hmm. A few years later, I think New York Times ran a story that's like, it turns out computers in the classroom is insanely distracting. <laughs> we're like, yeah, no shit. So we decided we need to call investors and tell them we're going to do something else. We being you. I think all four of us were on the calls, Okay, at least for the first couple. But yeah, I was doing the talking. And speaking of excruciating, that was excruciating because we had literally raised money like two or three weeks before. You know, we'd been like pitching this thing hard. They put in money and then two weeks later, they get a call from us like, yeah, this is a terrible idea. And we're going to do something else. Do you want your money back? We asked every investor whether they wanted their money back. Two of them did take their money back, which, you know, in retrospect, 10-year retrospect, <laughs> it turns out to have been a bad idea. But at the time, it was probably the right move. And we decided to build an analytics tool. So to compete with Mixpanel and Google Analytics and so on. That also turns out to be a bad idea. We wasted over a year on that. This is the excruciating part of roaming around the pastures. Exactly. Okay. So at this point, we're like a year and a half into starting this company. All of us have dropped out. We don't really have that much to show for it, honestly, right? Like You wrote like 150,000 lines of code for the analytics tool. Yeah, a massive amount. And... We have no customers, certainly no paying customers. And it's just still the four of us coding in an apartment after a year and a half. And it's like, dude, not good. Can I pause you right there? I have questions about this point in time. I've heard you say, I think you were living with someone else from maybe the same cohort as you and Y Combinator. And the way that you described it put a smile on my face because I've heard many entrepreneurs describe it this way, especially in Silicon Valley, which is that when you become a founder, you start to talk to a lot of founders. YC is designed exactly for that. And when you talk to all these other founders, it's the exact same narrative. I'm crushing it. I'm absolutely crushing it. Nobody actually feels like they're crushing it, but externally, for some reason, everyone needs to say they're crushing it. And in this case, the guy that you were living with on his couch was crushing it. And you know, I had heard you say, you forgot to eat for three days? This is Code Academy was the name of the... They were the like, yeah. Is this, is this all yeah, right? Zach's, Zach's a good friend. Yeah. This is right after demo day okay. for Y Combinator. Everyone's fundraising. This, and you're still on the... Still on the classroom lecture yeah. tool. Yeah. So we're all fundraising. We're struggling to fundraise. But Code Academy had had this incredible three-day run-up to demo day where they launched Code Academy three days before demo day. And it went viral. And by the time they got to demo day, they had 330,000 signups or something like that. So it just went completely viral. And so, of course, they were rightfully super hot on Demo Day with all the investors. And so, I was like struggling to get like a meeting here, a meeting there, like maybe a meeting a day at best with potential investors. And Zach would come back at the end of days and like, it was amazing. He would come back and be like, oh yeah, I just met this investor on their private jet. We were like, got a term sheet. We got another term sheet. They were just like rolling in term sheets. And I was like barely getting the round together. And it was like a 600K round and they were raising like a 10 or $15 million round or something nuts. 
And yeah, it was super stressful. And like, I'm super happy for him. They've had an awesome ride too. But at the time I was very deeply jealous and just totally destroyed as to like, what am I doing wrong? And yeah, I forgot to eat for three days. And then I went, finally realized that and went to Chipotle and it was like a new person at Chipotle and they accidentally made a burrito so big that they had to wrap it in two tortillas. It was perfect. You're not kidding when you say like you forgot, like you were so in your own world that you forgot to eat. And this is like not a super uncommon thing. Like I think this is public. Sam Altman uh, at one point got scurvy. It's crazy. I think it's bad when I get into a shower and I'm thinking about something else and I'll put body wash on twice because I just forgot. This is next level. It's very stressed. Yeah. Let's go back to that like original point about emotional bands and internalizing that. Do you think if you were going through that same thing today, do you think maybe today it wouldn't matter as much because you have money? Or do you think today it wouldn't matter as much because you're gold-plated? Like you are an entrepreneur. You're not an aspiring entrepreneur. Like you've proven that you can do it. Or do you think it would still feel that same way? I think it would take a lot more for me to feel that much stress. Maybe the specific question is, if you had to distill down why it was that you were feeling that, part of me feels like it's like your whole life you didn't fail. Like your whole life was like you were the guy at all times dominating everything, generally coursework, anything else that you set your mind to. And maybe, I don't know, this was the first moment of vulnerability of like, oh my God, like I put myself out there. I knew I shouldn't have put myself out there. And now that I finally did, like I can't do it. I do think there's probably something to that of it challenging the identity of always winning. Like I was certainly the straight A student through college. And yeah, this is probably, this was, it was probably the, or one of the first moments of failure, basically. I mean, in the end, we actually, we raised the 600K, but in that moment leading up to that, it looked like a very long shot. So yeah, you're probably right. So you raise the 600K, then you write bad idea. Investors come back. Okay. We're, we're still in. We bet on you. We didn't bet on the idea. Write 150 lines of code for an amplitude analytics company competitor type thing. Yep. Then that very clearly also doesn't work. Yep. What was signal that that didn't work? Oh, we had no customers. No one gave a shit. Yeah, it's very clear. No customers. <laughs> I'm not sure why we were so ambiguous about it. In our own heads at the time, we we're like, oh, we're like almost there. We're about to get product market fit. Like, no, not even close. So it's you and three buddies still, right? Yep. Was this the moment when the band almost broke up? Like, I don't know, maybe there wasn't that moment, but what was that like amongst the four of you? I think we got pretty close to that. But interestingly, the moment that was probably the closest is after Ian wrote a memo that said, I think that we should take Analytics.js, this open source library that we built. For this analytics company? Actually, we built it for Classmetric. We built it for the Classroom Lecture tool to have huh. different analytics tools on it. And it had just been sitting on GitHub for a year and a half. But people had found it and put a few stars on it, like 25 stars or something like that. And so people were like, actually using it even though it was like very obscure and that should have been an interesting signal to me and ian had kind of picked up on that thought there was something interesting in it had gotten calvin on board and then he and calvin i think presented to Ilya and i this idea that we turn to analytics.js as our product instead of the analytics tool that argument that happened around that moment i think was probably as close as it got to us breaking up as a founding team because i was like this is the worst idea i've ever heard 
It's open source. It's 150 or 300 lines of code. Like I do not understand how this can be a company. And I was willing to go the distance on trying to shut it down. And I spent all night trying to figure out how to kill it. Came back in the next day and was like, all right, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build a landing page. We're going to put it up on Hacker News. I'm going to prove to you that this is a terrible idea because no one's going to care. The alternative, basically, if we weren't going to do that, I think I was going to leave. Like I was really at my limit at that moment. We only had like four months of runway or something at that point too. So we did that. We put it up on Hacker News and Ian was totally right. Like it went straight to the top of Hacker News, got hundreds of upvotes, thousands of stars on GitHub, thousands of email signups, people were reaching out to us on LinkedIn, demanding access to the beta. It was just like, it was night and day. It was on. Yeah, completely night and day. This is going to be a weird question that I've never heard someone ask you. So I was very curious about it. Were you excited that that happened? Mm, It's very mixed. It was super exciting. And at the same time, I personally felt just like totally crushed because I clearly did not understand what made a good product. Like in that moment, they couldn't have a, a clear dichotomy of like, we tried an idea with a classroom lecture tool and that didn't work. But that had been my idea. We tried an analytics tool that didn't work. And that had also been my idea. And then we tried this third thing that wasn't my idea that I thought was a terrible idea. And it was working. It's like three super crystal clear cases of just like being absolutely wrong in both directions. Yeah. And so, yeah, that that was crushing. And honestly, I think even for the other guys, like we'd been struggling for so long. I think it took another month for our like emotional arc to bottom out on just like how sad and frustrated we were. It took another month for that to bottom out and for us to really start to believe again. We launched Analytics.js on December 12th, 2012, 12-12-12. And it was another month in January, really, before things started You mean because improve. the scar tissue ran so yeah. deep mm-hmm. from the pain yeah. of the last, whatever it was, year and a half, right? Yep. That it was almost like it was easier to protect yourself yep. if you didn't believe in this thing. Because yep. it would just be too overwhelming, too soul-crushing if for some reason this thing wasn't actually, like it was a flash in the pan. Exactly. And we had been burned so much by having a vision of what the world should want that even once Analytics.js had clear product market fit, we decided that we wouldn't build a vision around it. We were like, screw visions. The world doesn't care what the vision is. The world just wants the problem solved. And so we're not going to come up with a vision. We're just going to listen to what customers want and we're going to build more of whatever it is that they're asking for with very light filter on top. And then after six months, then we started to look at like, okay, well, now we need to make a pitch to investors, so we should probably have a vision. So maybe we'll caution out a little bit more into the world of what we think the world might want. Do you still believe that today? Did you, when you were starting Charm, have a little bit of trepidation around proclaiming the vision? There is an important difference, which is that Charm exists much more in sort of a commodity market, carbon removal, steel manufacturing, you know the problem that you're solving. The problem that you're solving is very clear. It's, is it economical to produce it this way? Are the economies of production better? Because that's what people care about in commodities. I mean, quality matters to some extent, right? There's a threshold that you need to clear, but beyond that, it's the economics of it. In software, it's a little different. The economics are often a lot murkier. You're not selling a commodity. You're solving some sort of new, hard to describe, complex group of problems for someone. So I guess a long way of getting around to answering your question that like, with Charm, I think the product is a little bit more straightforward. And the vision is more how we solve it. That makes sense. So it's on. And have you already dropped out? Oh, yeah. We dropped out a year and a half before. Okay. So you're like out of school already. Oh, yeah. In the wilderness. Yes. 
in excruciating pain. And then finally this thing starts working. And then the next set of challenges comes along, which is that you can't make money off of it. Is that right? Is that kind of the next, is that the most near-term challenge that then arises? Sort of. We start running out of runway, right? I said we only had like four or five months of runway. Right. And we were terrified to charge. We were terrified to charge money for it. I'm not sure why. We're just really scared of asking for money. Maybe that was coming from the open source world. Maybe it was coming from MIT or it was engineering and cost. You end up being very cost-focused as an engineer as opposed to value-focused. And I think we sent this like extraordinarily, when we had like six weeks of runway left, we sent this incredibly apologetic email to all our customers saying like, well, you know, at this point we might need to ask you for maybe like $10 a month, which was just laughable. And bless his heart, Eduardo at Maxi Store in Brazil, who was a user at the time, emailed back and was like, guys, keep me at $10 a month, but like, come on, raise your prices. Otherwise I can't keep using you because there's no way you're going to be around. And so, yeah, we were really struggling to figure out how to like appropriately ask for money. And it wasn't until we had a sales advisor in Mitch Miranda who went on to help a whole bunch of SaaS companies in this part of Soma figure out sales. And the number one thing is he's like, you have to raise your price by a factor of a thousand. The first conversation that I had with him was going into meet Nat at Xamarin at the time. It was the company that he founded, which eventually got acquired by Microsoft. And then he became the CEO of GitHub and eventually an investor in Charm as well. And we were going to that first meeting. They were already a user. And as we were approaching the Xamarin building, Mitch pulled me aside and he's like, okay, in this meeting, you have to ask for $120,000 a year instead of $120 a year. I was like, Mitch, that's ridiculous. We can't really go in with a straight face and ask that. He's like, well, then I quit as your sales advisor. And that was a little bit of a shock. And I was like, okay, fine, I'll try. And so we go into the meeting, we get to the end of the conversation. Everyone's really excited about using segment IO at the time. And Nat says, well, what's the price? And I said, well, it's $120,000 a year. And I turned beet red. And he's like, how about $12,000 a year? And I was like, how about 18? He's like, game on. So we ended up signing the contract at $18,000 a year. And, you know, Nat was saving 85% and I got 150X. (laughs) (laughs) But it went up from there, you know, like that was the first one. And then it was 24 and then 36 and then 45K and then 108K and then 240K. And... By the time I left Segment earlier this year, we had contracts well into the seven figures. Yeah. Seven figures. Does that blow your mind now? It would have completely blown my mind at the time. But now that I know what kind of value enterprises get out of it, no. Yeah. It's a great deal for them. Yeah. So it starts to work. So you raise a Series A, right? I think you even raise a Series B at this point. You're at around 10 to 12 million of ARR, which is like, a very serious company. Like this thing is working in spades. If you're at 10 to 12 million, you went from zero to two and a half, two and a half to 10, right? Yeah, it was explosive from two and a half to 10. Crazy. Two and a half to 10. In a year, yeah. In venture, it's the, you know, triple, triple, double, double. And you're a, it's a big, big company. Like if you can triple, triple, double, double your revenue in four years, it's a very big company. You went whatever, zero to two and a half, whatever that is, two and a half to 10, forexed. Like, it's like you're well on your way. Then what happens? The wheels start coming off the bus. So we go from, yeah, two and a half to 10. And then 10, that year we're going to go to 20. That's the company goal, 20. Yeah. And so in that first six months, we go from 10 to 12. It was like, like less growth in those six months than the prior six months. Whoa, whoa, that's not working. And what was happening was most importantly, 
the pricing, we had launched a new product the prior year called Redshift, where we could load customer data into a Redshift data warehouse. And that had just been flying off the shelves. But we had packaged it as a separate add-on. And what was happening is people were finding other ways of just doing that one part of it. So even though they liked the solution overall and would be happy to pay for the solution overall, this one particular add-on had the high price tag on it and, and they could kind of do different things there. So it was fundamentally a packaging issue. And so we got to this point where it was like, oh man, the company's in trouble. It's not going to work as a venture-backed company if we don't fix our packaging here. And what was weird is that I had a real problem with getting up in front of the company and saying, here's what the problem is. And the reason is that I felt like the problems were mine to solve, which is, I think, kind of a bad outcome of the straight-A student mentality, which is like, I'm good at solving problems. I should solve the problem. It's the biggest problem for the company. That's just wrong. It's wrong for a CEO founder, especially at that scale. We were like 50 people, I think. At that scale, like the CEO should be solving the problems. I mean, you can help, but like really your job is to provide clarity as to what the problems are and when they need to be solved by. That is the role. And it took our head of HR and our part-time CFO to like drag me into a room and be like, Peter, you have to tell the company what the problems are. Like no one really understands what's going on or they can just tell that things don't feel right and aren't going well. So I was really scared. I got up at all hands and I was like, hey, everybody, like we got a big problem. This packaging issue is causing revenue to slow down and we're like way off target for our goal. And so we're going to have to focus on this. And specifically, I'm asking this team to do whatever it takes over the next week, this engineering team to ship our new pricing and packaging by Monday. And it was a like very high ask, you know, like basically work nights and weekends nonstop to get this thing done. I felt terrible, felt absolutely terrible about making that ask. In retrospect, when I've asked people, the people who were on that project, they're like, that was my favorite moment in the entire history of the company. It's like I was solving the problem that was going to unlock this huge amount of value. We had so much fun doing it. We got it out. It worked. It solved the problem. And we hit 20 million ARR at the end of the year. And it was like so rewarding to work on a problem that I knew was so important for the company. And that was still mind-blowing to me that somehow calling out the problems that the company faces was so empowering to the team. And that I think was a pretty transformational moment for me. How old were you at that point when you get to like 25? I would, that would have been in 2014. 20, yeah, 2012 is when Free started working. So probably 2014. Yeah, it was 24, 25. It's crazy, man. You know, at that point, it's a real company. Okay, like you knew you wanted to start a company, but when you're like standing on stage, part of me feels like there's like this imposter syndrome, like not asking for money from a customer, getting on stage and asking people that have more experience than you to do something that you feel like you should be doing. Is that how it felt when you look back on it? Like, where, do you, where does that come from? It was definitely a real company. Customers definitely had real expectations. And we definitely did not have senior enough people around the company knowing, I mean, myself included, knowing how to do it. It was definitely a team of junior people, myself included, who were figuring it out as we went. And that was, yeah, I guess we had the hood spot to like <laughs> muscle through it in the end. Yeah. But uh, probably a lot of imposter syndrome. We generally say like, all right, you raise your series A, you have product market fit, like it's time to hire executives. Like this money should go to great executives, empower them. Was that hard for you to hire these executives? Was that hard to build that crew around you? It was super hard at first. 
I mean, even going back to before the Series A, like we came out of MIT. There's lots of amazing talent at MIT. A lot of friends from MIT who were super talented. But by the time that we had, we were ready to hire, we were a year and a half in. We'd been failing. It was obvious to all of our friends. Like <laughs> our friends did not want to come work for the failing MIT guys from their dorm, you know? And so we had to go into a new network, which ended up being open source folks. A huge problem for us was like brand and network. I mean, we were fresh out of college. We had no network in Silicon Valley. And there was not really any public evidence of sort of product market fit really starting to work aside from this one hacker news post. So yeah, it was super challenging. And that's actually one of the reasons why we raised from folks like Kleiner Perkins and Excel and so on in some of the early, in some of the early rounds, because we explicitly wanted the stamp of approval from like tier one investors who could give us a little bit of brand, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. There's a story that was told to me. I'm not sure if you uh, will remember this or not. Someone came into the office pretty early Monday morning and the security guard was there over the weekend and there on Monday. And he was relaying a story to this person about how this skinny kid came into the office on Saturday and how the security guard and the skinny kid played ping pong for like eight hours. And the guy asked like, oh, what did he look like? And was describing you. And then he goes, that's the CEO of the company. <laughs> and the security goes, no, 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 no. The skinny kid, like the little guy. We didn't even talk about the company. And he was like, no, no, that's Peter. That's the CEO of the company. And the guys was floored. Do you remember this? I don't know about that instance, but the security guard and I definitely played ping pong. <laughs> <laughs> it was super fun. He was good. He was very good, actually. <laughs> the way the story was relayed to me was like, it wasn't this like false... I'm the CEO and I don't want anyone to know type thing. It just didn't even cross your mind. It didn't even come up. And I was trying to unpack for me, like, why was that so cool? Like, why did that story really resonate with me? As I thought back to it, like, you went through so much. You were so proud to be the CEO of this company. You went through all of this pain and excruciating pain. And you finally get to this point and no part of your like ego was tied to the status that the job held. The reflection that I had was, it was all about solving the problem. You were just chief problem solver at the company. It didn't really tie to your identity in that way. There was plenty of opportunities where it could have come up in a pretty long ping pong game when the security guard's there. I don't know, what do you think of that? Maybe I'm completely like, I'm not a philosophizer over here, but I just thought it was so cool. And I definitely get my ultimate enjoyment out of solving the problems with the team, for sure. But I think I'd be lying if I said I didn't have some ego about it. For sure, the ego is there, but I don't think I get that much enjoyment out of it. In the end, the like enjoyment definitely Like you're comes. saying it's fleeting. Yeah, for sure. It's fleeting and it has a false ring to it. Tell me more about that. Well, it's not that meaningful. I mean, people say on their deathbed, right, that like the thing that flashes in front of their eyes is not the moments of great power or whatever the thing that flashes before their eyes is like memories of all the people they love and relationships they had and mm -hmm. not necessarily that we should optimize for the last moment of our life but i think that's probably true throughout the rest of our life too i think i have the joy of having great friends and a wonderful wife who keep me very honest to myself my wife erica and calvin and Ilya, who for many years have taken me down a notch when appropriate and I think just joy in life comes from those kinds of relationships much more than like the fleeting whatever yucks that come from 
my sense of power. Ultimately, the company grows to a couple hundred million, like 200 plus million of ARR. I've heard you describe it as a kind of a long process with Jeff, the CEO of Twilio, met about once a quarter for 18 months. And at first, you just didn't see it. The vision didn't jive with you. Let's skip the answer of the team and the culture just made so much sense. You know, the product vision was so complete. At what point did you say, fuck, I think it's time to sell? Did anything change? Look, Jeff had been trying, had been pretty clear about the vision of like how the two products came together for quite a while, but I didn't see it. I did not believe it. He's like, look, we bring the ability to send messages and you bring the ability to collect all the data that informs how those messages get sent. I was like, yeah, I mean, sure, but that's not the problem that I see in the market. Like when I talk to customers, that's not the problem that I see them exactly trying to solve. The problems that I see them trying to solve are more around getting good data and getting the right, like much more myopic to like the problem that, that we were specifically trying to solve. But I think over those 18 months, as we started to talk to more larger and larger enterprises, as we continued to grow, what I found is that customers were actually starting to talk the way that Jeff was. That was the seminal moment for me was like, no, these customers are actually saying that they want to connect the data through to how they send the messages. They actually want to communicate better with their customers. And so that for me was the moment where I was like, okay, this actually has legs. Like if customers are really talking about it that way, then it makes sense. And by the way, that ties back, if you remember, to our experience at the very beginning with Analytics.js, which is we were like, screw visions, right? Which is what I thought Jeff was pitching me for a long time. All that matters is what the customers are telling you. And if the customers are telling you that this is their problem, like game on, go do that. Yeah. And that is exactly the same experience that I had through the acquisition discussions. Were there other suitors that came along along the way? Sure, yeah. And that made it competitive? Yes. Yeah. And when you get to that point, because there's a lot of people that are listening that have been there or will be there, what is your evaluation criteria, dollars aside, for the right partner? Well, there's a lot. Like practically everything has to go right for an acquisition to make sense. Not only right timing wise, but the product strategy has to make sense. The customer bases have to overlap. The like all sorts of cultural things have to line up. Otherwise, it's just going to be a total disaster. Like the go-to-market motion honestly needs to line up. A lot of things need to line up for it to make sense on both sides. I mean, I've only been through one acquisition. I think acquisitions are just incredibly bespoke. I got to ask you, that Friday night, how did you celebrate? Did you, what did you do? Did you go solve a problem or did you grab the dom and start sh- spraying it everywhere? <laughs> the week the acquisition closed was probably the craziest week of my life. The acquisition closed on Monday. The presidential election was on Tuesday. My wife went into labor on Friday and she had been working on the election. The president was declared on early Saturday morning and then our daughter was born on Saturday morning a few hours after after the election was called. So yeah, that was uh, six days. Oh shit. It was a big week. Yeah. So that Friday night, I was at the hospital with her. <laughs> no, no, Don Perignon. Did you get the team together at any point? When the Oh, a- and it was COVID, right? And it was COVID, yeah. So no, we still have not actually had a big celebratory dinner, which is a bummer. But the funnest part actually of post-acquisition was after it was announced, Myself and Calvin and Ilya did back-to-back phone calls with all the early people, all of the executive team, like a whole bunch of people who are really important to the journey and just reflected with them 
on what had happened and had a chance to thank them for everything that they had done to, to build the company. That was a really special set of phone calls. That's so cool. You'll never forget that. Yeah. You have some very interesting thoughts or perspectives on sales. Can you tell me how sales as a function, what that perspective meant to you and now currently means to you and maybe how that changed after segment? At the beginning of segment, I had a very, very strong distaste for sales. I think we all did. We were coming from engineering. Sales was like used car sales. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just like, ugh, we don't want sales. Mm-hmm. I think we came to understand that used car sales is bad sales. Like great sales actually looks very different. Great sales is much more about understanding where the customer is. What's the problem that they have? Great sales starts to look like a great problem solver. Yeah, exactly. That is exactly what it is. And I love that attitude. I love that approach. It's a deep discovery and qualification process. And it's about ultimately getting the customer to entrust you with solving their problem. And I came over time to really appreciate that that was a key part of product development. Actually, maybe the key part of product development is understanding what problem the customer has and then being able to relate how you're going to solve that. And so, yeah, I came from a place of originally feeling like sales was kind of transactional and gross to a place where, no, sales is the beating heart of a business and it is the connective tissue if you do it right through to what the product should be. And so as someone who really likes to spend time more on the product side, I now see it as super, super critical. And I think a lot of the early learnings that I had in sales were actually seeing our sales team in action. So maybe the best example of this actually is our second sales rep. We were in the hiring process for our second sales rep and uh, Raf, our first salesperson, was leading the conversations and he's like, this guy's awesome. We need to hire him. And I met him and it was like Jersey, slicked back hair. I was like, there's no way that this guy is going to do well selling to CTOs and VPs of engineering. This is going to be a disaster. And I did my interview, came out like, no way. (laughs) We were telling Raf like we shouldn't. And he's like, no, 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 no. Trust me on this one. Trust me on this one. It's like, okay, fine. Let's do it. So we hired Serti. And, you know, I couldn't have been more wrong. Like Serti grew into, I think, the top performing rep for his entire tenure. or very close to it. And he was loved by his customers. And I think a big part of it was that he brought this, like, curiosity and desire to ask questions of the customers that I hadn't seen anywhere else. Like to the point where people from Segment would find it extremely awkward extremely awkward to be in the room when he was asking questions. Like we would sit down in front of a big enterprise customer that we'd fought to get in front of. And the customer would be like, why are you guys here? And Serti would say something like, well, why are we here? That's a good question. Why are we here? Do you have problems with your data or something? And they would be like a little taken aback. And then they might say something like, well, yeah, we're actually pretty happy with our data, but it takes a little longer. He's like, well, why does it take longer? And he's like so aggressive in asking these why questions. He could go on for like 20 minutes. Like, why? Why? And the customers were like borderline affronted at first, but then got that it was like legit curiosity and would basically spill the beans about everything that they were facing and the problems of like political issues, whatever. And then it was like an alley-oop for him to do the sale. He's like, well, you said X, Y, and Z. Here's how we solve those problems. Seeing a great salesperson in action on discovery converted me, I think, from a believer that sales was kind of this scuzzy thing to believing that this is actually creating value for the customer and helping them even understand their own problems. Can go-to-market be a competitive advantage? If you were to build another B2B 
SaaS enterprise business. How would you think about go-to-market differently from the get-go? Would you do anything different? Yes. We would explicitly make the transition to an outbound and inbound mix, but inbound is kind of easy. Like you get inbound, not for free. Marketing team drives that, but from a sales perspective, like they'll always take the inbound leads. Building the outbound muscle is hard. Building the rigor around measuring the inputs into the process of are you making the outbound calls? Are they working? Are they turning into leads? Mm. Hiring the people who have the ambition to want to learn how to do the hard part of sales there. That was something that our final CRO, Joe Morrissey, started putting in place. And he's incredible. And he comes from this sort of lineage of sales leaders that really, I think, do drive a competitive advantage, a major competitive advantage in go to market. Mm -hmm. Do you think it starts with culture? There is no way, even if you had the right person, if you did not view sales in the way that you do today, like there has to be a culture. What I see over and over again with very technical founders is that by inserting sales, it's almost like you're insulting the product, like you're calling the baby ugly because it's like, well, no, it's easier to close these deals. Our win rates are higher. Like you can come up with a million justifications for why sticking with inbound and only pulling the inbound levers is better. But ultimately, if the culture just doesn't exist, you can always just use those rations. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, I don't think there's any reason for a product team to be insulted by great sales. Why would you not want two modes? Yeah. Like, that's just dumb. You, yeah. should, you should take two modes all day. One on the product side and one on the go-to-market side. So there's no reason to be insulted far from it. I have a just general question about your posture on things, and then I want to get into charm. You're very, very surprisingly vulnerable. And I say surprising from the picture that I just showed you of that Peter and the one that turns beet red and the one that's very controlling over outcomes and all the things that we went over, right? You're very open and honest about shortcomings. Part of the reason why I was so excited to have you on is because I think you're doing the biggest favor that you possibly could to other entrepreneurs. Because this story that we're talking about, this could be told in a very different way, right? This could be told in a, we went from zero, Y Combinator funded us, two and a half million, Excel, Kleiner came in, two and a half to 10, 10 to 20, hire an executive team, which by the way, that's how they all sound. That's how they all sound. And I find that A, just so lame, because it's just not true. And B, it's a disservice to anyone else that aspires to do this because how unrelatable is that? The same reason why Code Academy was so painful to you was because there was nothing you could do to control that. You couldn't overcome anything. You just felt like, oh my God, it's just working. That's the most unrelatable feeling. Is that why you've transitioned so aggressively towards being like incredibly authentic and open and honest about failures and challenges and that kind of thing? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure why people tell the stories with only the high points. But you agree that they do? Often, yes. Yeah. The stories that I like to read are the ones that are about the hard times, right? Like the hard thing about hard things. That has some gnarly, gnarly stories in it. Or even like Shoe Dog or like Ride of a Lifetime or uh, the biography on Elon. Totally. Yeah, or even the new one where it's based on the stories of employees. Yeah. Like these hard moments, those are the ones that are interesting. Those are the books that I like reading. 
So those are probably the most fun stories to tell too. Why do you think those are the books that you like reading? I think actually there's a universal narrative of the sort of traditional journey of like, you start at a high point, you fall to a low, and you return to a high point. Like these are the things that we find relatable and inspiring. And I think that's a, actually a general human trait, no? And that's true, I think, of every hard thing. Every hard thing that's been done has these highs and lows. And you see that in all those stories that I don't think I'm the only person who likes those books. Those books are like the classics, if you will, of entrepreneurship, at least among my circle of friends. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. The original idea of class metrics was something that mattered to you. It was a very acute problem that you felt. When you're in the wilderness looking for problems to solve and product market fit, that is customers telling you what they care about. Yep. Maybe the what segment does, and we can come up with a million missions for why it's important. Ultimately, I believe that a mission of a startup is the coolest thing ever. And we don't have to come up with all these fake missions about how much we care about data or payment processing. Let's just call it what it is. This thing's going to grow like crazy if it works. If we find product market fit, careers are going to be made. People are going to have so much headroom to grow into their next job. They're going to get promotions. And that is the number one path for upward mobility in someone's life, in my opinion. Yep. That Can't that just be the mission? You know. <laughs> anyway, we come up with all these other missions that it just seems a little bit disingenuous to me. Is this the one where you're like, yeah, I love this. I'll do it for free. Totally. I think the, the mission of directly aligning the company's business model with fixing parts of the climate problem is incredibly, incredibly motivating to me. For every dollar that we take in, we put carbon underground. For every dollar that we take in, we produce fossil-free steel eventually. That is super motivating because it means that as we grow the company and as it becomes more successful, we are literally removing carbon from the atmosphere. It was important to me that when we started it, that there be that direct alignment with something that is super important to the world and that is super meaningful to me. And I think it's super meaningful to everyone in Charm. So there's that. The, the other thing that honestly is a huge breath of fresh air for me personally is going from software to hardware, being able to actually walk around a machine that the team has built gives me so much kind of joy and pride of like, this is an actual physical manifestation. It brings you back to your aerospace engineering Exactly, days. exactly. Yeah. Can you tell the story of how charm became a twinkle in your eye originally or this idea? Yeah, I mean, and really remember, I kind of set the area, but the actual breakthrough for the product here comes from- comes Right, from but just like why you started thinking about this space, and I think it happened at Segment, if I'm not it mistaken. Did. It happened at Segment in 2016. We were trying to offset our emissions and- uh, And for the audience listening, what does that mean? As a company, we were responsible for emitting CO2 mm -hmm. in flying myself and salespeople and, and candidates around mm -hmm. in the electricity that we consumed at our office, in the food that we ate, driving to work by commuting, all of these things ultimately are powered by fossil fuels and therefore are emitting CO2. And so we wanted to pay for something in the world to go take that CO2 out of the atmosphere permanently. And so the way that we did a little research and looked like the best way to do that was to set aside some rainforest in Indonesia. So we did that. And a year later, I was like, okay, we paid like ten dollars or $20,000 to like this Indonesian rainforest set aside what happened. And the deeper that we dug into it, the more we were like, oh, 
I am not sure that anything really good happened here. Like of the money that we paid, 70% went to marketing agencies in the US. You could kind of go through the nonprofit financial statements and see what was going on. The other 30% went to actually setting aside rainforest. 70% went to marketing? Yeah. 30% actually went to the rainforest. And when you set aside that rainforest, it's like, okay, well, but like, how are you accounting in the carbon impact for the fact that it might burn down next year? Because there was a year of uh, many years of huge forest fires in Indonesia. How are you accounting for like, instead of logging or this particular area getting turned into a palm oil plantation, like didn't that just shift over one block? This is the same amount of palm oil still going to get made. So like, how has this actually changed anything? And a lot of that detailed accounting of how are we actually ensuring that carbon came out of the atmosphere did not look very compelling to me at all. And in fact, you know, a lot of research done over the last decade has shown that the carbon impact is not really there for the vast majority of these projects. There are some high quality ones, but you know, the latest research out of Stanford and Oxford and Berkeley is that about 97% of the nature-based offsets that are out there have no carbon impact. So 3% out there are great things like the environmental defense fund and amazon have done some particularly good work there but and so that was kind of how i became acquainted with the problem where i was like well what do we do then like are you kidding me there's just no good options for us to ensure that we're going out and we're emitting we're flying around we're using electricity driving to work like there's no way for us to get this back out of the atmosphere that's crazy so that was what led me to it and at the time i, I was like well very naively i was like well you know it's the election year for the president. Clinton will get elected and this will all get fixed through regulation. That's naive on a bunch of levels. And then, of course, we know how that election went. Obviously, no real progress got made on this. And I was on a flight back from Hawaii with my wife, Erica, after our anniversary and thinking about emissions because I was on a flight. As one does when they're on flights. Exactly. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I kind of think the only way this is going to work is if it's profitable to take CO2 out of the atmosphere. It doesn't have to be a huge profit, but if there's an economic motive to go do it, then that could work. And so I wonder if there is a business model that could produce something that had a byproduct CO2 removal so that you could drive this economic result of pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere for some other purpose. And so we, myself and another gentleman, Kevin Meisner from Planet Labs, and eventually a couple other folks from Planet Labs, Kelly and Sean, we dug into biomass gasification as a way to do that, where you could take biomass, waste corn stalks and tree residue, forestry residue like timber slash and forest fire load reduction in the Sierras and so on. If you could take that just waste biomass, it's already captured CO2, it has some energy value. If you could take that and produce this sort of industrial precursor called syngas and use it in industrial processes, you could sell the syngas and get carbon in the form of char out the side. And so that was the initial idea that we would sell the syngas and we would basically be sequestering carbon in the same process. And so that led to the formation of Charm in 2018 and a small R&D team working for several years to try to figure out how to make that work. What's the stat? Last year, Charm delivered 90% of global permanent carbon removals? Yes, and it was a small number, 5,450 tons. And that should be terrifying because globally, permanent carbon removals last year was about 6,000 tons. What's the number we need? We need 10 billion tons by 2050. Total. Yeah. So we need to go from 6,000 to 10 billion over 28 years. 
which is 65% compound growth for 28 years. It's twice as fast as the growth of software. I was going to say, what else grows that fast? Yeah, twice as fast as software. You have a thread, and the way that you tee up this thread is that everyone's beating their chest about Mark Andreessen talking about how software is eating the world. And software eating the world, and the point that you make is that software is a tiny economic shift compared to climate change. And what you go on to say is that everyone thinks that this is, in quotes, concessionary do-gooderism. This is exactly what you were just talking about. I think there needs to be a profit capitalist motive for this. But part of the reason that the climate boom we're seeing now is different than 08 to 2010 is because the people have seen wind and solar succeed and they're now seeing the correlated dollar signs. The enterprise software market is, let's call it like 500 billion-ish. I think that's all of software, not just enterprise software. All of software. 500 billion in revenue. 500 billion. And what is climate? Like, what are the estimates? How real is this? It's on the order of 10 trillion in EBITDA that needs to turn over. Explain that. It's a massive, massive profit engine. If you look at all the oil that comes out of the Middle East, all the oil that comes out of the United States, all the oil that comes out of Venezuela, all the natural gas that comes out of all those places, all of the physical installations that not only produce coal power, but that blast furnaces that produce steel, all of the vehicles that need to switch from gas to electric, all the homes that need to switch from natural gas to electric heat pumps for heating, for water heating, all of that infrastructure, all of those layers of the economy that currently depend on physical infrastructure that consumes fossil fuels, all of that is going to have to turn over by 2050. And so that is massive. So that 10 trillion in profit is everything that comes out of all of those industries. And that's not a single company. It's many, 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 many companies. Just like software. There's a, there's a investor, I forget who, recently said like, look, wait a minute, JP Morgan. It's like, look, the next thousand unicorns or a huge proportion of them are going to be in climate because this is a massive economic transformation, an order of magnitude at least larger than software. Why do you think now is the time where it makes sense, where the zeitgeist is giving you tailwind? Two reasons. One, this decade is really kind of the last chance to get some of these transformations started from an infrastructure perspective. Because unlike software, you cannot deploy this stuff with pushing some lines of code to an AWS cluster somewhere. You deploy this by putting steel in the ground over the course of several years. Like if you want to go change out all of the steel plants all over the world, that is a multi-decade proposition, no matter what. Knowing that, if you backtrack from 2050 and say, well, what's going to have to happen? What's the timeline, the Gantt chart from 2050 back to now? There's basically no buffer left in the system to get it done by 2050. And so knowing that means that politicians are more motivated. I think the public is starting to really have the feeling of urgency there. And so you see bipartisan support in D.C. for all kinds of things related to climate. You see corporates being willing to actually put large amounts of money to ensure that things like carbon removal get off the ground. Like you have the Frontier Advanced Market Commitment. It's a billion dollars of purchases committed from Stripe and Shopify and McKinsey and Facebook and Google. So you just have massive growth in and sort of increasing conviction from a lot of constituents and stakeholders that matter. And it is because the Gantt chart back from 2050 is getting tight. What do you want this company to be? When it grows up, it's a seed stage company today, right? 
Yeah, Series A. Series A? You raise a Series A. Yeah. I think Charm can make a very significant dent in both carbon removal in those 10 billion tons, as well as decarbonizing big chunks of industry. In many ways, we kind of think about ourselves as a reverse oil company, right? We're taking CO2 out of the atmosphere, we're converting it into this liquid, and then the CO2 ends up underground. And so we basically are reconstructing a bunch of industrial processes, starting with carbon removal and also steel manufacturing, such that the CO2 flows in reverse. And I think the easiest way to think about that is a reverse oil company. Just think of the scale of oil globally today. It's massive. And hopefully we can play a big part in reversing the flow of CO2 and getting the climate back to a more sustainable place. It's hard not to root for you, Van. It's hard not to believe in you. I'm just really excited to see what you do. I can't wait to have this conversation with you in five years and learn what you learned. That's what I am truly excited by. I cannot wait to see what your reflections are in this journey. And I can't wait to see what you do wrong and tell everybody else about it so that they can help, they can, you can help them avoid some mistakes. So just appreciate it, man. Thank you. Cool. Yeah, thanks for having me. And excited to share more of those learnings when we get there. Certainly have made some already. Dude, I always end these things the same way. I was so entranced by what you were just saying that I almost forgot to ask the only questions that I always ask. The first, are you hiring at Charm? We are definitely hiring at Charm mostly on the mechanical engineering and R&D side. So I'm disqualified from that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, also hiring for program manager. So this is someone who can help us run an R&D program and get the machines out of the building, out into the field. Best way to apply, best way to get a hold of you, like what? Charmindustrial.com. Check out the team page. Awesome. Last question. What does the word grit mean to you? It means seeing it through to the end. In Middle school, or I think it was middle school, I had this habit of just kind of starting random new projects all the time and unfortunately not one of finishing them. And I was walking through the living room or kitchen or something and my dad said, you know, someday you're going to have to learn how to finish projects too. He doesn't remember it, but that like really hit me on the head. That's what grit is about, I think. Peter, I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback, so feel free to email us, grit at kleinerperkins.com. 